Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. I'm Claire McKenna. You're listening to Changemakers, the podcast series that talks to people who stand up, speak out, or challenge us to think a little differently. Oh, it's a good one today. I was fairly bowled over by my next guest, who is Anne-Marie Tomchuk. Anne-Marie is from Longford in Ireland and she grew up with Declan Nurney, who's a famous country singer, as her uncle and Una Healy of the Saturdays is her cousin. So music and community were very much a part of her childhood. She taught herself to play the violin by ear and herself and her twin sister Sinead used to perform in her garage. So you may have been forgiven for thinking that her role centre stage would have been something musical. But she has a very analytical, intelligent brain, as you'll hear. And she originally thought that something in science and technology would be the route she would go. But working on a documentary really opened her eyes to life as a journalist, which she began her career working in RTE and then jumped over to London where she worked with the BBC. She then went on to be UK editor of Mashable, the online tech site. She then went on to become digital editor of British Vogue. And that seems to be the one that people get most excited about. I don't know whether it's the movie The Devil Wears Prada or just the sheer prestigiousness of the fashion title that is Vogue. But she helped the company evolve its online presence. And not only that, but was invited to high profile fashion events across the globe. You may have seen her writing and articles in Glamour magazine. And more recently, she writes on sustainability and climate change for the Irish Independent. That's because during the pandemic, like many of us, she took the time to reassess her life, her work and where she wanted to go next. And like many of us, the sheer weight of climate change weighs heavy on so many of us, but it can be so confusing and overwhelming that it can be hard to know where to start. But start she has setting up two companies. One is Share Joy. It's a non-profit organization which asks people to reassess their wardrobe and give away good pieces that are then sold on Depop and the proceeds go to mental health charities. We talk about this in the interview and you'll hear the very beautiful personal reason why she set that up. But sustainability and working against fast fashion was very much at the core of what she wanted to do. She's also set up a company called Design Tracker, which she will explain in the interview. But basically, she's trying to help people live as sustainably as possible in a decarbonized home. That is a very big ask. But as you'll hear, Anne-Marie is not afraid of a challenge. 
in this episode, we talk about the importance of hope when it comes to climate change, how cynicism is still needed to weed out greenwashing and how nobody really has it all figured out. We also talk about female entrepreneurs, how the economic model of scale and growth isn't sustainable and the power of small change. I do hope that hearing this interview will leave you with some hope because not only does she give advice on on what we can do to bring about change and, and work within this climate crisis we found ourselves in, but also that you'll realise that some of the best minds, and I'm including hers in this, are working on this massive global issue. She knows so much about the fashion industry, about business and now sustainability I love, love, loved this conversation. Anne-Marie, you're very welcome to Changemakers. Thank you very much for having me, Claire. Anne-Marie, there is so much I want to talk to you about, but can we go back a little bit with your work? You are working as a reporter at the national radio station here in Ireland, 2FM. When did the move to London and, and the BBC come about? Um, So I worked in the RTE newsroom in the radio division for news for about five and a half years. And believe me, I literally worked on every single radio program that there was in news. And after about five and a half years, I just figured, well, I'm approaching my late 20s now. And this is the time if I'm going to try to do something different and make a leap over to London and work somewhere else now is the time to do it as I think that the further into your life you get and the more ties you have whether that's mortgages or children or other family commitments of looking after your parents or there's various different things that crop up uh, the further into your life you go I think they would have lost the will and the mentality to do it so I guess I just um what I did was I it seems a bit mad now actually thinking back um it was 11 years ago I set up a week of meetings went over to London and I stayed uh, caught up with some friends and I basically set up a week of meetings with anyone who would, was willing to meet me for coffee and just give me advice on how to um, break into media in the UK. And it's a very different market over in uh, the UK. You know, I mean, if you even just think of the size of the population in London alone, you know, I think it's something like 12 million in the greater London area, um, which is very very large in comparison to the you know entire population of Ireland so it's a big market and so in some respects it felt like it's going to be harder to get a job here but in others it felt like well this is a bigger pond so even if I get a little drop in the ocean I can you know hopefully um get by um so I ended up uh very fortunately um discovering that the BBC world service the world tv were hiring a new batch of producers uh, TV broadcast journalists uh, for their newsroom. And so just via talking to um, some of my contacts in the BBC, I'd done some work as a fixer for a lady called Emily Buchanan, who at the time was working in the World Affairs Unit for BBC. And she'd come over in, I think it was 2008 and 2010, to do coverage of the economic crisis in the Eurozone crisis uh, in Ireland and I'd helped set up interviews for her. So I reached out just to contacts and then got a steer as to where the opportunities were. But it was not really at the time where you had, you know, a, a, a very polished LinkedIn or a blog or even your Facebook at the time wasn't really being used for work. So it was kind of interesting to just go out there and 
just talk and find out about opportunities through word of mouth with no magic formula or any guarantees that it was going to work out. Um, But I got a job in the BBC World Newsroom um, as a producer. And it was uh, under a contract where there was no guarantee that it was going to be a long-term prospect. And I remember at the time, the guy who um, I was speaking to, um, a man named Morris Hartnett, who's originally from Ireland, was the scheduling manager in the BBC. And he said to me, I think... His exact words were, I think you're stone mad leaving the great work that you're doing over in RTE to come over here and uh, take on a gig where there's absolutely, I have no guarantee of work for you. But he could see that I was determined. And I think that, you know, if I could even get a drop of that determination back (laughs) now, um, I feel like go very far with it. You know, there's something about there's something about the fearlessness that you have when you're in your twenties, uh, that you sometimes can become more cautious as you go on into your career. And there's something really, um, brilliant about being fearless and also almost being like ignorant of what you're, the gravity of what you're doing, if you know what I mean, where I just literally packed two suitcases and moved that was it and I left my car in my um, mother's driveway but I suppose the spontaneity of it is is what I'm trying to describe that spontaneity of just upping sticks and going. The more ties that you have the more diluted your vision is you know and your your commitments and you just had this tunnel vision that this is what you were going to do and this is who you were and this is how you were going to you were going to go on um, and you had a fantastic career there at the BBC. And one of the things when I'm researching you that's written about the most is how you've worked in fashion and how you worked with British Vogue. And people talk about it as if you got into the Vatican and became the first female pope. Now, I'm not trying to <laughs> put down your achievements in any way, shape or form, but it does seem to be this holy grail that you had got really far in news and current affairs in Ireland. You got really far in news and current affairs at the BBC in London, which you said, you know, is a massive market to try and crack. But it seems fashion journalism is where people really are, were starting to give you serious kudos. Why do you think that is? That's really interesting, actually, because um, because I was working at one of the most senior levels uh, in British Vogue, reporting directly into the editor-in-chief, uh, Edward Enninful, and leading all of the uh, journalism and the content production across their website and uh, all online and video and social, uh, which is um, quite a responsibility. But I suppose what I should acknowledge is that that wouldn't have happened if I had tried to go in on the in the door of British Vogue at the early days of my career without having a substantial amount of digital uh, experience behind me. And it was really the experience that I, I gained from launching BBC Trending, which was the BBC's social media investigative unit and producing a lot of original investigations and um, really trying to reinvent, I guess, the way we used social media as a news gathering and a news distribution tool at the time, but also leading then leading a team of journalists in Mashable, 
which is a media and entertainment company who do a lot of technology coverage around AI and big data. And during that time, I made a number of feature-length TV documentaries in my role as UK editor for Mashable, running their London HQ, their UK operations. So, you know, there was a lot, a lot that actually happened before um, getting into British Vogue. And I, I always remember there was something that um, Edward said to me before he hired me. He said, I really believe that we can learn a lot from you. And um, I always remembered that because I was learning a lot from him and I was learning a lot about the fashion industry at the time. And I hadn't worked in fashion my entire career. I'd worked in technology and news media. But I suppose principles of storytelling um, apply, you know, and this is the, something that journalists are really great at. You know, we, you know this yourself, Claire, um, we, we are able to retain or take in and absorb a lot of information about something and become quite expert at it relatively quickly. Um, and there are a lot of di- one of the beauties of being a journalist is that the access to the different types of communities and people and walks of life that you get via your your career, I think is unparalleled. Actually, I think it's quite unique. Um, and that was one of the things that drew me to journalism. And in a way, it was a gift getting the chance then to work not only in tech in Mashable and going off to Silicon Valley and meeting the great and good of the AI world or robotics and automation, but then the great and the good of the fashion world um, through working in Vogue. Yeah, and, and so Vogue was quite a formative experience. Um, it was a formative experience in the sense that it was a very different world to working for a public service broadcaster. Naturally, they're, they're very different landscapes. So I had a lot to learn, um, both in terms of culture and how things were done and who's who. You know, you're going into a whole new world where you're, getting to grips with who some of the people are. But it was also a really formative experience in the sense that I, uh, prior to taking on the job in British Vogue, was really passionate about sustainability and the environment. And I guess working in Mashable, where it's a, it would see itself as a very progressive title and very socially minded and social good is a really big component of the coverage we did there. Uh, the environment and sustainability and social justice issues were really, really to the front of my mind when I was going into the British Vogue job. And I suppose um, it was really amazing to see what someone like Edward Enninful was doing to transform a legacy or a heritage title like British Vogue. I prefer the word heritage because legacy, I think, has connotations that it's outdated in some way. And that's not what I'm trying to say. I think there's a lot of heritage to the brand. You know, British Vogue has been around since 1916. And so I fully appreciated the responsibility that was associated with that role and with what Edward was trying to achieve with it and with his vision. And one of the big parts of my job was to execute that vision uh, online. Um, and fashion is so much bigger than the clothes on the runway or the clothes on people. It 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 speaks a lot to to culture. It tells stories. Um, as you say, there, there there's a there's a historical quality to it. Is that how you view fashion? I, I think fashion is a prism into every facet of life. So 
fashion, you can talk about economics, business, culture, sociology, history, uh, pop pop culture, music, film. I'm, you know, I could go on. You can more or less talk about anything through the lens of fashion. And I think that that is something that sometimes people forget. There's, there is a level of frivolity to fashion now and again. And, it, you know, that's fair. That's fair to say it can be frivolous. But what's wrong with being frivolous sometimes? We all need a little bit of fun in our lives. You know, and fashion brings joy into people's lives and it can give you a really strong sense of yourself. And uh, it can help you uh, identify where you feel you belong in the world. And, you know, I've definitely uh, felt that over the years where the clothes that I've worn, whether it's on television or uh, at a party or in my day to day life, uh, my day to day life, even going to the gym, you know, depending on how I dress, it's going to affect how I feel. Actually, going to the gym is not a good example because I never go to the gym. <laughs> but um, I mean, if I went to a yoga class, let's say, if I wore something nice uh, that I feel good in, it's going to change how I enjoy that class. And I think. Um, but that's something we forget about with the power of fashion. There's a transformative power to it. Psychologically, uh, I think there's something really powerful there. Um, and also the, the level of creativity and craft um, that goes into fashion, you know, particularly in couture. There's an art. This is an art form. And the thing that I, I think didn't fully appreciate until I had close proximity to it through working in British Vogue is the the skill uh, that fashion journalism, uh, the skill associated with fashion journalism is like being an archivist or a historian because the kind of cultural references that you can make on the basis of the knowledge that you have of all of the different collections um, that have been produced over the years and the kind of correlations you can make about that or how you can contextualize that is something that I didn't fully appreciate until I, I was working with the best in the industry. And I have to say, it's something that I have a huge amount of respect and admiration for. You mentioned your interest in sustainability on a, on a personal level and how it was very much involved in the writing you were doing on the tech world with Mashable and, and, and social good. So how did that transfer then when you were working within the fashion industry? Did you see the same type of, of discussion around it? I definitely felt that sustainability was something that um, the the industry is really cognizant of. And that is because fashion is believed to be one of the most environmentally and socially unfriendly um industries in the world and what I mean by that is uh there's there's still a lot of ambiguity around exactly how much damage um fashion does to the environment um so for example the UN has has stated in the past that fashion is responsible for up to 10 percent of global carbon emissions however there's been a lot of different other statistics that have been given for example McKinsey have estimated that it's more likely that it's around 4%. But even if it's, whether it's 4 or 10%, it's still actually a significant percentage of global carbon emissions. And um, what I mean by that is to produce clothing um, comes with a social and environmental cost. 
Um, and I'm not specifically talking about high fashion. I guess what I'm referring to more uh, is um, overproduction of clothing, but also production of fast fashion. And this was something that uh, anyone who works in fashion is aware of. You know, you'd need to be living on another planet not to know about these things. Um, but also the pace of the, the the pace of the fashion calendar was something everyone was also really aware of where the number of shows just kept getting bigger and bigger and the pressure on designers and fashion houses to continue to produce new, 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 more, more, more. Um, and I, I suppose what I'm referring to is the direct byproduct of capitalism on uh, the fashion industry. And there are things about fashion as well that are extractive. You know, a lot of there's been a lot of conversation around cultural appropriation and extraction and I won't get go too far into that as I think, you know, you could nearly have an entire episode around that. But um, the idea that there are um, communities and minorities who are either exploited or whose culture has been extracted for the sake of capitalist goals um, where, you know, their culture or their heritage is taken and used to be monetized for a business without their own input in it. And that's where the problem is. It's it's different if a community is uh, is supported, whether it's financially and systemically, to flourish and grow in a in the you know in a large business context. But when someone's tradition and heritage is taken and appropriated and taken away from them and then used by another community to grow, that's where it becomes and to gain money, that's where it becomes a little bit problematic. So these are all things that I think anyone who's worked in fashion is pretty pretty aware of. But changing uh, them is a whole other matter. And at what point then did you begin to reassess or evolve from your position in British Vogue to where you are now setting up companies and working more within the field of, of sustainability and, and climate change awareness? Um, I suppose the turning point for me was during the pandemic. And I'm sure lots of people can relate to this when your whole lifestyle totally changes as a result of being in lockdown. Um, It was already happening for me before that. But I think that there was an acceleration or a consolidation of some of my goals during lockdown because you have time to really think about where you want to go with life and to reflect on what your longer term objectives are, and what you want your contribution to be. And uh, so I found that in 2020, I found I was doing a lot of, um, I was going back to um, my tech roots, firstly, um, in terms of what I mean by that is I was going back to a lot of stories that I covered almost 10 years before with BBC Trending, things like child protection on the internet, um, misinformation online, uh, social justice issues. Uh, for example, I did an investigation into the building safety crisis here in the UK. was one of the first journalists to cover uh, just the scale of the, the cladding uh, scandal here in the UK, which is um, related to Grenfell Tower. Uh, and um, social issues were just something I was covering um, in much more detail. And I sound like I'm going off on a tangent, but actually... There is a point to this because 
what I what I realized, you know, in a very deliberate way, which I, I think I'd known all along, but I guess became much more conscious of, is that the economic structure of society as it is laid out right now um, with capitalism has brought us so many benefits, but it is also directly linked to inequality um, and social the social justice movement that really, I think, had been listened to up to a certain point, but in in 2020 was gaining the ear of the entire world in a way that it hadn't been done before. I think that there was this moment of change for a lot of people in 2020, myself included, and I felt mobilised to um, do something uh, with my knowledge and experience and to use those skills towards a more solutions-focused goal uh, rather than always you focusing on the problem I suppose what I'm trying to say is that via talking to so many people who had been left behind or who had been uh, whose lives had been utterly altered because of some of the practices that had taken place in the UK around building for example you can see the damage that that can cause to society and actually part of the reason that's happened is because it was about scale and growth of buildings uh, you know a capitalist model of development it was a, the, where the bill was being passed on to the homeowner. And I could see that there's a direct link between social inequality and sustainability and addressing some of the issues that need to be addressed there. And that's not just here in the UK, but that also applies to the global south. If you think about who's, who's made your clothes, if you're buying fast fashion, the person who's made your clothes is likely to have been in a factory in Bangladesh. And the wages that they've received, you have to ask yourself, are they getting the, the living wage? Um, if the price point of the piece of fashion is very, very low, if the likelihood is the person that made your clothes was um, part of slave labour. And so, you know, I suppose I just wanted to do something proactive and op- optimistic, I think is the word I would use. I wanted to try to do something more optimistic while being fully aware of the gravity of some of the problems that are there and the complexity of the issue of climate change. Uh, and of uh, sustainability and capitalism because it's so entrenched in how our economies work um, that I don't think it'd be realistic for it to be completely dismantled, you know, immediately. But I think some changes are going to need to happen to that system the way it works in order for it to continue because it's not sustainable. And what I mean by that is it's not sustainable to focus solely on profit and growth if both people and the planet are going to get destroyed in the process because all the profit and growth in the world is not going to last eventually if you don't have anything in the future. So the model itself needs to change somewhat. And it's so interesting to me, like even as you you put it yourself, these are massive topics and massive systems, but your interest that you spoke about originally in in STEM subjects, you still like to deal in facts over ideology and you want to be solutions based. How did you go about that? Because I think a lot of us can be guilty, particularly living now with all the talk of climate change to just being overwhelmed and almost paralyzed by that overwhelm. How can we completely change the world how did you break it down to 
actually start to, to, to make a difference and how did you choose your direction? Well, um, there were two two main things I started to work on in uh, 2020. Um, I'm not sure which one I should tell you about first. <laughs> I suppose let's go with Share Joy first because I, I launched that one first. Um, so in November 2020, I uh, the, the two biggest themes that are on my mind um, in that year were sustainability and just all of the stuff in my wardrobe and how I wanted to live more lightly and just feel like my own lifestyle reflected my values but also mental health and technology and how we were all on our screens and our phones and our social networks and everything else so much more at least I know I was and I don't think I'm alone in that I was online more because the opportunities to go out and socialize with people in real life had been minimized. So I was finding I was spending a lot more time online. But I also found that it was having a direct impact on my well-being. And when I say a direct impact, I mean an adverse one. I was just feeling, I just, I don't know how to describe it. Um, I wouldn't go so far as describe it as anxiety because I don't like to um, trivialize these words, you know, but I definitely felt strung out and, not feeling really well, you know, like it wasn't contributing to my well-being by being online so much. And like anything, I suppose, if you have too much of of a good thing, it can eventually become something that isn't good for you. Um, so I wanted to do something that would address these two things and to um, try to use technology in a more, uh, what's the word? Um, I guess I wanted to use te- technology more constructively and with more intention um, but also wanted to do something around fashion and sustainability and all of the stuff I had in my wardrobe so I I, uh, I was thinking about that but I also at the time had received a call from a dear friend of mine um, Maeve McMahon is her name and she's a woman who I uh, met via my work in Mashable we were both at a work dinner and she'd worked with a she works in financial services um, but we became great friends. She's a, a farmer's daughter from Clare and I'm a farmer's daughter from Longford. <laughs> and we both just hit it off and have stayed in touch ever since. She called me just to have a catch up. And then she told me about a, another dear friend of hers, Marie Sullivan, whose daughter had died by suicide in the first few weeks of lockdown in April uh, 2020. And so this was about six months after um, Arwen Sullivan's death. And Marie her mom wanted to do something about it. You know, she wanted to try to, I guess, either do an interview or an article about um, suicide or try to do something to, I guess, just to try to have a conversation about suicide, which is quite rare because it's such a painful um, loss and an awful experience. And I'd been thinking about this idea of uh, putting together a fashion edit and uh, I was introduced to Marie Marie and Maeve and I jumped on a call in early November 2020 and I always remember the call because it was such a humbling experience where um, uh, it was at around 5 p.m and at that time of the day the light is going down and I just remember I was sitting in my loft and um, in in London, uh, where I am sitting now, uh, where I do my work. And the sun was shining so brightly in the window. Like I had to turn, I had to pull the blinds down because it was shining in my face to the point where Marie couldn't really see me on the screen. 
we we were doing a video call and a, a Zoom call. Marie was in Ireland and Maeve was in Ireland and I was in London. And it was just a humbling um, experience where Marie just told me all about Arwen and the story of how Arwen, Arwen had uh, died. And um, we just chatted for about an hour and I told her about, I proposed this idea about putting together a fashion edit, whether she would be open to uh working with me on this you know to put together a beautiful fashion edit of 20 Irish women who would donate an item each from their wardrobe of something that gave them joy and where the money raised would go to mental health charities and the idea just it it was a kind of a magic moment some of these things happen in your life where it just organically happens and it all fits together perfectly but this idea of share joy was perfect in the sense that it perfectly, it was the perfect way of paying tribute to Arwen, but also the perfect way of doing something more solutions focused about a very, very painful subject, uh, which is suicide prevention and suicide awareness, and also a very, very dense and complicated subject of sustainability and fashion. Both of those topics are extremely painful when you really hold a mirror up to them. And I suppose what we were trying to do with this is um, hold a mirror up to the topic in a more constructive and joyful way, um, while acknowledging the pain of what they present, trying to do something that that rallies people together to um, mobilise people to do something different that might make a difference. And Arwen loved fashion. You know, she was someone who... Or, you know, shopped in vintage shops and used Depop, which is a mobile shopping app. So we decided to use Depop as the launch platform for ShareJoy, where we'd open up a ShareJoy shop and all of the items that are being donated by different people would be listed on Depop and on Instagram. And then every penny raised goes to our designated charity, Pieta, who at the time had been providing Marie and her family with a lot of support in the aftermath of Arwen's passing and uh, they do a lot of work in the area of suicide prevention and suicide awareness and um, we're just so proud of what we've achieved since we launched so we had that conversation in November and then fast forward two months and we'd launched the ShareJoy edit uh, with a website with the Instagram account and with the Depop shop and so there was a lot of work involved in coming together and making all of that happen. And a lot of people helped us uh, put that together. It's a, it's a non-profit, it's a social enterprise and, and a circular fashion initiative. Um, but there's something extremely wholesome and rewarding about working on ShareJoy and the kind of people I have um, worked with over the past nine, 10 months since we launched. It's just been incredible. We've launched, we've we've raised tens of thousands of euro through sales and donations, um, on the uh, website and on the Depop shop, um, and we've done some really amazing things. For example, we launched a Pride edit during Pride Month, where we uh, dedicated the month of June to LGBT Ireland. So all funds raised went to that that charity to support people in the LGBT community whose mental health was being disproportionately affected by covid because when you're in isolation 
or when you're living in more isolated circumstances that can have an impact on your well-being um so it's been a, a, a really beautiful platform to um to be able to provide support and spotlight issues that matter to us both in sustainability and in well-being quality sleep is essential that's why the sleep number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature sleep number smart beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And I think it hits on so many levels. Share joy is such a clever word for it because not only does it do that, um, but it makes you really become more of a conscious consumer because not only are you donating something out of your wardrobe, but you're taking a look at your wardrobe. You're then encouraged to take a look at how you shop and, and how you live. And that's all by donating one piece to the site it can actually affect change and then you bring about more good and then you see how that impacts with whoever buys it, but then also the donation that's then made to charity. So it's like a a ripple effect that starts small and individual, but also ripples out. Is that the kind of model that you wanted then to bring to your next project with Design Tracker? Because you're really going for the big guns with that, aren't you? And looking to work with companies and corporates to help them track how sustainable they they truly are because do you think the corporate world is as confused and as overwhelmed as the consumer is when it comes to climate change and climate action oh that's such a good question and just to pick up on what you said about share joy i think that um it's we, we can't underestimate the power of one little small change what that can make because that has a ripple effect and i think what we're trying to do with share joy is to um change the kind of the nature of the conversation around fast fashion and around our wardrobe so that we change the value and the perception of clothes by um by focusing on uh, on them in a people-centered way so what, what i mean by that is you the value of something i think changes when you know that there's a person who has worn that and who has lived in it and who has memories of it and i think that 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 carries a lot of meaning for us so there's something quite powerful in that and, you know, we could do an entire episode on share joy uh, itself, because I think there's a lot more to say as well about mental health and technology. And one of the things we've been focusing on is time well spent. And really, uh, if you're going to give your time to share joy, we want you to we don't want you to be on our platform for a long time. Our our model is almost the opposite of the capitalist digital media publishing model. We just we want it to be intentional and we want uh, it to have meaning. So it doesn't mean you have to buy everything in the shop. But if you get even one good quote or something, 
you know, an inspirational quote or something that will uh, even in some way inspire you to think differently about your wardrobe, our work is done, you know. Um, on the topic of design trackers, so the, the other company I've been working on, so ShareJoy is a non-profit, but um, I've been also building out a, a very exciting proposition called Design Tracker. And the inspiration for that was, you know, I was uh, at home during lockdown and really thinking about sustainability, uh, big business um, corporates and the kind of change that's trying to that, you know, the corporate world is trying to move towards. Um, and that also includes governments as well. The, the, these huge entities, the type of change they're trying to move towards between now and 2030 and 2050 because there's a whole range of different goals and targets that are being laid out you've got the kind of 2030 camp where people are trying to make um pledges to get to a certain percentage of carbon emissions by 2030 and then you have the more long the long grass where you've got the 2050 and the 2060 camps around the world of people making countries making pledges to get to net zero for example uh by uh 2050 or by 2060 i'm not going to get too bogged down on the numbers because i think once you start reading all the different figures and and you know which country is pledged to what it's very easy to get lost in all of these things and i suppose what i'm trying to do is bring a fresh perspective uh to how we talk about climate change and sustainability both in the corporate world, but also by bringing it back to our homes. And uh, I, I guess I'm my goal is to become a much more plain talking or plain speaking, accessible voice within the space. Um, as I feel that once you start to really look into the detail of sustainability, it quickly becomes extremely technical. And while I love the analytical and technical side of things, and I think it really speaks to my um, the side of me that, you know, wanted to become a scientist <laughs> or an engineer. Uh, I also um, love creativity. And I think that the thing that we were missing in the world of sustainability or the thing that hasn't been given the same level of prominence in sustainability is, is the role that creativity and the arts and culture can play uh, in that as well. So I suppose what I'm trying to do with Design Tracker is to marry those two sensibilities together uh, and to uh, look at the world around me. I was at home and uh, during lockdown thinking, where do I even begin to decarbonize my home, you know, or to decarbonize my life or to change my carbon footprint? You know, and I've made a number of choices. Uh, some of it was enforced. So, for example, I'm not traveling so much at the moment. Uh, and that's great because that's reducing my carbon footprint as travel is one of the key things that uh, will have an impact on your emissions um if you think about it the other main things that you can do as an individual that will reduce your carbon footprint which is the amount of carbon dioxide or co2 released into the atmosphere from your activities um they happen in the home right so when you think about it the, your energy bill or the heating your heating bill or the fuel that you use whether it's for your cooker your gas cooker or your fire or the fridge, the dishwasher, the the, the um, washing machine, the dryer, all of these things, right? That's one really big part of your carbon footprint. The next is the food that you eat. And the next thing is the fashion that you consume. But you can all bring those things back to the home. So I was thinking about this and I was thinking, you know what? Like, actually, there's something really powerful about 
what the home represents for us. So during the summer, I went to the Orkney Islands, which is a prehistoric village. It had been discovered in the late 1800s, but it dates back more than 5,000 years ago, before the Great Wall of China, before Christ, before, you know, it's it's old, (laughs) for want of a better word, right? But the fascinating thing about Scarabray is it, it is a prehistoric village and it shows you so much about how people lived so long ago. And there are elements to how the layout of homes were that are consistent to how we live today. And I think that, that there's a commonality to how we live around the world in our homes. There's something that connects us all as human beings where for some reason homes are structured in a way where we have walls, we have doors, there are corridors. Um, There are places where we share a meal. There are places where we sleep. There's a commonality to how those things have developed over time. And they've they've often developed in isolation. So like, you know, a home in South America, you know, pre-internet days or pre the days when people traveled, it developed in in a way that uh, there are commonalities to a home that developed in Ireland, even though we, you know, might have done them without any knowledge of the other person's activities, you know. And so I think that there's something there about the home that really speaks to the human condition. Um, So if you can bring back the discussion um, of sustainability back to what we do in our homes, that can actually play a really, really impactful role in how we actively reduce our carbon emissions. Because out of the four key things you can do as an individual to reduce your emissions, three of them happen in the home the energy you consume, the food you eat and the fashion you consume. So uh, the other one is travel. And and in a way, actually, some of that happens via the home if you're going to have an electrical vehicle and a charging point and decide to cycle or walk everywhere or use public transport. So so I think that there's something really powerful in that. And so I've been looking at trying to, to deconstruct and look at some of the great businesses that are providing the best products and services that will help you to live uh, more sustainably in a home that is decarbonized. Um, now, that sounds like a big, <laughs> a big project, and it is. It's not a small thing that I'm trying to do, you know, although some of the changes you can make are big and small, whether it's making sure you're using a keep cup or whether it's um, if you're going to give, you know, a lick, your home a lick of paint, thinking about the kinds of paint that you buy, whether you're going to buy, you know, non-toxic paint and uh, that has been made in a way that, it, you know, with chemicals that aren't going to be so damaging to the environment. There's, there's things big and small that we can all do. Uh, so to, to bring it back to the business world, one of the things I'm doing with Design Tracker is I am creating an index called the Design Tracker 100. And it is an index of 100 companies who are doing really phenomenal things in terms of their sustainability and design credentials and that deserve to be recognized as businesses of, you know, as an example of what good looks like, you know, and that could be, for example, an innovative um, piece of clothing that is fully recyclable or that is made from textiles that are really innovative, whether it's, you know, mushroom leather, for example, these, you know, there are a lot of really are made from waste. There are a lot of really exciting things happening in the fashion space right now um, around the kind of textile innovation and the supply chain of understanding the provenance of an item and how, how it um, 
was made. And I think that's, you know, let's just take fashion, for example. One of the biggest challenges with measuring fashion's impact is understanding or having oversight over the, the supply chain. And what I mean by that is from when the textile, you know, from when the cotton, for example, is grown to when it's made into a textile, to when it's cut into a pattern and then made at a factory to then being you know transported to be sold in a shop and then for it to be sold to the consumer but one of the things that um the fashion industry and a lot of companies are not taking note of at this point in time and how they do their social responsibility reports is what happens after the point of sale you know what becomes of that item of clothing so you know i am looking at those companies that are doing innovative things and creating an index of trustworthy uh, businesses uh, that deserve recognition. And I suppose it's trying to approach the topic of sustainability from the other side of the coin. You know, a, a journalism often focuses on some of the negative, and that's important that we still hold power to account. You know, that I'm not saying that that doesn't still need to happen. That absolutely still needs to happen. You know, and the amount of greenwashing that is taking place in a range of industries, including uh, in the the fossil fuel industries. You know, a lot of the fossil fuel companies are now uh, rebranding themselves as energy companies where they, if you were to look at some of their ads, you'd think they were angels, you know, and it doesn't give the full picture. So there's still room to uh, produce robust journalism and to scrutinise a lot of the solutions that are being put forward by positive and negative actors, you know, and to really get the full picture. But what I'm trying to do is more uh, focus on the people who are proactively coming up with solutions, scrutinize that solution and see, does it stand up to scrutiny? And if it does, then it's actually even more powerful than it had originally even been intended. But I'm bringing it back to the home. And so it's quite a complicated idea that I'm trying to explain. But uh, I'm trying to simplify it, I guess, by bringing it back to the world around you that everyone can understand. And how has it been going within your your first year? I know you've brought about a, a board. You're bringing in lots of other expertise and your ideas evolving as it goes. How have you enjoyed and found the process? Oh, I think um, that's a great question. You know, the main thing I would say is, I mean, the, the, the task itself is really big, but there's a lot of momentum um, around what I'm doing. I, I really do feel that the, that what I'm doing is um, uh, commercially sound, but also environmentally and socially sound. Um, and here in the UK, you know, um, there's a lot of really exciting things happening with regard to how um, the government is... Uh, holding businesses to account, which align really closely with what I'm trying to do with Design Tracker, which is help businesses transition towards a much more sustainable um, business uh, model and operational model. Um, So in the UK, for example, they've just announced um, new rules, which would mean that larger businesses will have to uh, disclose their sustainability practices. That's a big that is a big piece of news because disclosure is one of the uh, biggest challenges to how we um, move forward with this challenge of sustainability. There's been a lack of transparency um, to date because businesses haven't been legally uh, required to disclose what they're doing. 
Um, but once you start bringing in imperatives on business to do that, we're going to see change, you know. Um, and I suppose the reason there's been a lot, lack of transparency as well is because when a business is doing something good, but they haven't got it all figured out, there's a caution there, you know, and sustainability is so so complicated and multifaceted when you look at it in an end-to-end way uh, that I don't think anyone has it fully figured out you know this is the thing that that uh, it's really important to say Um, I was having a a conversation with a friend recently who works in the area of disclosure and uh, ESG and what I mean when I say ESG I mean environment social and governance and it basically is a acronym that's used to describe how businesses you know operate from their environmental and social standpoint and how well governed they are. Um, but he he gave a great analogy. He described uh, the whole sustainability and ESG space as, think about it as you're going into an elevator in a really tall building. And we're all actually on the ground floor at the moment, waiting to go up. And most of us are at the same level of knowledge uh, when we're in on that floor, you know, and I I felt really uh, heartened by that because I'm trying to do something where I haven't got it all figured out. And it would actually be wrong of me to say that I've got it all figured out because nobody has it all figured out. You know, these are really this is a really large issue. And climate change is um, it's such a um, it's it can seem sometimes so far away when you're talking about as targets that need to happen in the next 10 years or by 2050 and I think that's why it's not possible to have it all figured out but there still needs to be a plan and a framework and a logic uh, to how people are going to get there you know the the detail still needs to be ironed out it's all well and good making all of the commitments so I suppose what I'm trying to do is be play an important role in not the what we're going to do to get there or the why because those things have already been stipulated. It's the how. I'm trying to play a role in the how. I'm going to be really candid with you about starting your own business. And this is something I think is really important to say as a, a female solo founder, uh, that I, I have definitely been on a journey with this. It's all going brilliant and you know, all of the it's going it's going really well. And the the momentum is there, I think, around retrofitting the UK's homes, around businesses being held to account uh, to disclose their sustainability claims and what they're actually doing with regard to how they're addressing uh, how sustainable they are. Right. So all that momentum is there. And, and I'm really excited about that. Um, so in, on that front, I feel that everything is going really, really well. And I'm I feel uh, really excited actually about the work that I'm doing and building out a, a really brilliant advisory council. And uh, and this is something that's evolving. So hopefully you and I can even chat uh, six months or a year from now and um, we might be having, you know, uh, uh, another conversation if it goes in the direction that I'm hoping that it will. But um, what I would say is that when you're a solo founder, I think that more support is needed for, for female founders. And I read a statistic um, a couple of weeks ago about the amount of investment that has been given to female founders in 2020 in Ireland. It has dropped from 11% to female female founded companies has gone from being uh, funded 11% to 6%. 
So only 6% of companies funded in 2020 were female founded. I think that's alarming, but I actually can see how that has happened. Um, because the reality is that women have taken on um, a hidden burden during COVID where we have either had to leave our jobs or take on additional responsibilities within the home because there are gendered roles that just um, subconsciously happen or looking after relatives or childcare. You know, in my case, I don't have children, um, but I, I, I see statistics like that of how there is less investment going into female founders. And it, it really actually saddens me because women hold the key to some of the most important change that we're going to see in the world in the next 30 years. And that doesn't mean that men don't have a role to play as well. Men want women at the table too. You know, if, if we're honest about it, um, everyone wants to change. But the way that the the world is structured at the moment is the vestiges of a patriarchal structure. Capitalism is a patriarchal structure. And the, the language that's used in the business world is changing as a result, of, and the culture of the business world is changing as a result of more women being at the table at every stage of the process, you know? And so that needs to happen. There needs to be more support for women going out there and trying to set up their own businesses. And I'm obviously like biased in, in saying that as I am a female uh, solo founder myself, but I think that women need to support women more uh, and they are doing that. But we also need other external factors supporting us in, in, in making this happen. I couldn't agree with you more. And, and I also think in the words of uh, Sheryl Sandberg, the COO of, of Facebook, we need to lean in and we need to, as women, go the distance and keep fighting through the barriers because eventually things will shift. And there are so many barriers and there are so many women that sadly fall away in the race, I think understandably so, and then don't end up at the table. So yes, keep fighting is what I'll say. And do you feel hopeful, Amory? I mean, at the time of recording, the Earthshot Prize was just um, televised and sitting watching it, I felt equally terrified and hopeful, terrified in the language around the time that is running out, but hopeful in the idea that we can turn it around and that there is incredible work going on worldwide. And as you say, the momentum is there. Do you think hope is key to this, that we begin to talk in an optimistic way rather than a, a defeatist way and really let people know that on, a, on, an, on an individual as well as a, a larger scale that we can turn this around, that we can make a difference. Yeah, I think that you've hit the nail on the head. I think hope and optimism are things that we really do need. Having said that, and this is probably not going to be popular for all of the optimists out there, even though I count myself as an optimist, I'm also a realist. And I think we also need to be wise to um, hope or optimism. That's, you know, or I think we need to be wise to greenwashing that is being presented under the guise of hope or optimism. So um, what I mean by that is there's a lot of 
chatter in the investment community around ESG and how this is great. We're all going to make a ton of money um, from making our businesses more sustainable. And it's being treated like a, a little video game where we're going to bring a bunch of smart people in. We're going to solve this problem. It's all going to be very easy and straightforward. When the reality is that the future of the planet and our livelihoods and our future generations is at stake. This is about survival. Um, so I, I suppose, you know, while I'm encouraged by all of the hope and the optimism, and it's really the it's the optimists who are the ones who are going to change this because they will be the ones who will still ask the question and think that something is possible. You know, that sense of possibility um, is needed in order to overcome or to uh, address a challenge as difficult as this. But we also still not we also still need to be aware of the fact that I think there are other um, there are people with other motives who are coming into this optimistic space, you know, and that's definitely the journalist in me who always has that tiny drop of cynicism in there. Um, but I think that's kind of needed, too. We need to have our heads screwed on about this and um, on this subject of the Earthshot Prize. I think it's absolutely brilliant to see um, some of the, um, the the big innovators and thinkers getting acknowledgement um, for the work that they're doing. And uh, this week, at time of recording, um, the Renaissance Awards has also happened, which is a, an awards um, uh, that was uh, being rolled out by uh, Livia Firth uh, of EcoAge, where she and her team are recognising um, in 18 international young leaders. And I think there's something really powerful about recognizing the young people who are not necessarily, you know, at the table and at COP26 um, brokering the new targets or the new policies or laws. And I think that they need to be. Uh, there's something about the mindset that you have when you're young. It's what I said at the start of this interview, that mindset I had when I was in my 20s, that sense of possibility and just going for it. You know, we need to be involving young people and not just the young activists. There's different ways that young people are, are bringing about change. You know, the inventors, um, the scientists, the creatives, the the people who are who are just fearless, you know, uh and and they care so much because this is their futures that's at stake and and um we need to do i think we need to see see young people um in a way that's less patronizing and see what they're capable of you know and bring them you know really involve uh, young people in in how we can uh, bring about this change and there was a quote that i read from jane goodall um recently that really really hit home and really encapsulated what Design Tracker is about. Um, she said, you know, one of her big complaints when she talks to the media is that, yes, we absolutely need to know all the doom and gloom because we are approaching a crossroads and if we don't take action, it could be too late. But there are stories that should have equal time because they're what give people hope. And I think we need to connect with people uh, uh, with something hopeful that's going to connect with their hearts uh, on this subject because it's worth caring about. And if there's someone listening, because I, I want to leave with a, a little bit of hope, do you have advice for people on how they can make a difference on an individual level? Absolutely. I think, you know, don't underestimate the power of what you can do. Um, 
you know, whether that's starting with something like a keep cup, you know, when you go to buy your coffee, uh, bring your keep. I know keep cups are not going to solve the climate crisis, but you've got to start somewhere, you know, or thinking about how much clothes you um, you buy and whether you could do something, you know, for your community, uh, you know, clothes swap uh, sale uh, in your local community or thinking about the food you eat. I mean, I've given up meat and to some people that would be a really big sacrifice. I found it really easy to do. I thought I would really miss it and I don't miss it a bit. And now I, I feel like, you know, it's a small thing, but it's making some kind of a difference. And if there are enough people out there who do those little things, the kind of when you when you add all of that up, that's, that's amazing. That's that's powerful. Well, Amory, I hope you will talk to me again six months, a year down the line to keep us informed on on, on what you're doing and how it's all going. Uh, thank you so much for all that you said today. Oh, it's been so lovely chatting to you, Claire. Honestly, it really has. Thank you very much for inviting me to talk to you. Thank you for listening to Changemakers. If you enjoyed the podcast, I would love if you would take a moment to rate, review and subscribe. It helps other people to find the podcast too. Take care. Normally being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.